This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, the band is back together after vacations and life events. It's been a few weeks. I'm Shane, Ryan, and Brendan. We all get together and update on stuff that's been happening in our lives, including my very short trip to Ireland. On the Shift, we take a phone call trip to Ukraine. Russia is once again bombing Kiev. Mikhail Zarikov, former judge and lawmaker, shares his firsthand experience with attack and actually joins us during an air raid siren hiding in the bathroom. Backyard barbecues are about to become a lot more expensive this summer, especially if you're buying the steaks. Sylvain Charlebois, food security expert from Dalhousie University, gives us the three reasons why the cost of food is so high. Plus, are you okay with mayo? This is the Shift Podcast. It's been a minute since we've been here and uh, with a little bit of uh, time off and all of those things. So it seems only uh, most appropriate to sort of reintroduce the status of the things because, well, the reality is, is due to some moving and some vacation and all the things, uh, it's, it's been a while since the band is back together again. So introducing on drums in the back, Brennan Kelly. Oh, no, I've got no rhythm. Yeah. Ryan O'Donnell, Brendan's in Vancouver. Ryan O'Donnell's in downtown Calgary. I'm Shane Hewitt. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here and listening to the shift. Uh, it's been a while, guys, since we've been on a call together. It's like we got a memo of Matchy Matchy. I know it doesn't matter in radio, but we felt it was funny that everyone's wearing blue. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, here we are. So let's start with Brendan Kelly because, uh, I know that the audience has heard that, uh, you've been, You've been off because you were moving and all those things, uh, but you are back. How you been? How are things? Oh, it's uh, good, good. Now, I usually begin my day by walking five minutes down to the beach and open up a book. Got a little color today. You know, nice. go to a little coffee shop, uh, get a little coffee. You know, I spend $3 on a coffee usually about four days a week now, so that's an increase Uh-oh. in the budget there. But you know what they say... <laughs> Too much order, you know. You know, it's great to to get order out of all the chaos of life, which I've done over the last two years. But you go a little too far sometimes, and there's a little mm. too much order. So you got to dip one toe back into the the world. Are oh, you feeling your back into the chaos? Yeah, and buy buy a coffee every once in a while. So, wow, we're gonna have to bring an economist back on again, like no. we did suddenly for Ryan, so we could get um, you know, get some of the lessons of the spending under control. <laughs> I, th- I'll, I think I'll be okay. I'll be okay. I, I still I still check the app and make sure that I can, you know, yeah, all, all you the tight it. saving over the last two years has afforded me a three dollar coffee. Yeah. It's okay. You're gonna need good turkey. Yeah, right. I've uh, I tried to uh, I've been trying to ease back on the coffee and I find it particularly difficult. But then when I drink the coffee, I feel, it feels good. I enjoy the coffee much more. So that's been kind of a nice treat. Uh, when I was away, um, coffee tasted completely different. The, the, like it's just different suppliers and different blends, I suppose, versus what we have. And um, I don't know that I liked the coffee in Ireland, but I was very grateful of just the change. Like I, if you said to me, hey, look, I can get you a big bucket of Irish, not Irish coffee. That was different. That was awesome. But like more of <laughs> yeah, the gonna... Ireland's, let me say it this way, Ireland's coffee. Um, and uh, we can have that in your house every day for you. I'd be like, nope, I'm good. I'm perfectly okay leaving that in Ireland and look forward to it. Uh, when I get back there and doing that again, that's for sure. You like the Irish coffee, don't you, Ryan? I 
well, I, I was going to say, like, I mean, maybe it's brewed that way so that you make it an Irish coffee with a little uh, Baileys. Ooh. But it is it is different when you go to Europe, because I know that was the first time you ever been to Europe. I can remember the, the going and uh, having McDonald's in Europe. It tastes completely different. It's a Big Mac, mm. but it tastes completely different because they have different beef. They have different lettuce. They have different everything, even though yep. it's got the same brand on it. So that's kind of neat. You know what even else coffee is there. different there? What? Guinness. Guinness is no. different there. It is. Okay, it okay, is. Hold it, on. Is. it is. There's hold a line on. where um, a Guinness um, cannot travel over water. That's what they say. Is it because it tastes better? different outside of Ireland? Yeah. Is it better? It, t- or is it- it's better. It's so much more smooth. Um, oh, it, the, man. I'm not a big. I'm not a big fan of Guinness. Right? Like I like I'm to have Guinness, Guinness a couple times a year. If I buy a four pack of Guinness, it lasts me a year. Um, and, and all those things. And so I enjoy it, but I don't love it. I don't crave it. I find it more to be the meal than I do to be refreshing. But there, I mean, I get it. I get why people drink, uh, period, why people drink. And I get it why, <laughs> actually, now that I said that, I was like, mm, yep, that's the end of the sentence right there. Um, I get it why people drink Guinness there. And it's such a fascinating company. I learned a million things like the, the Mr. Guinness, the dad or grandpa or great, great, thousands of years old grandpa he bought the land that's downtown dublin where that factory is and they um they bought it for 49 pounds for a thousand year lease and um it's so they have this big chunk of dirt and it's just it's a fascinating story of of money and commerce and uh, intuition and all of those things including that the country had to negotiate with guinness for the the symbol of the country being the harp because Guinness had it mm-hmm. first. And so the country had to go to them and negotiate. And the settlement they came on was that they flipped it backwards. They inverted it. And when they inverted it, they were like, okay, that works. And they could do it. And that's how they got around the copyright law of the, the logo. So absolutely fascinating. And I got to tell you that having a Guinness is one thing. I, I spent an afternoon in Galway, which is on the West Coast, the West Coast of the West Coasts. And... In Galway, it was June 25th, 11 degrees, and that just misty spitting rain. And you're kind of looking at your calendar, and you're going, is this June? Is this almost July? And that was normal. Back in 1998, I went to Ireland for the entire month of July, visit relatives. And uh, no, July is not any different than what you just described. Every single day, even if it was a perfectly nice day, a storm would blow through middle of the day and it would rain pretty heavily. And then it would go back to being a nice day. But like every day I was there, I was there for 28 days and every day there was significant rainfall. Yeah, significant. And I, I, um, rainfall at night, rainfall in the day, mist, just mist that sort of flies in your face. They, um, it was amazing to go and it was 20, there was one day that I was there, it was 21 and sunny in Dublin. And that was apparently such an anomaly. Everybody was outside. I did learn why everything was so expensive. Actually, let me tell you one more story about Galway. It, the thing that I learned about Galway was that in Galway, the we're in this old pub downtown. And it's like literally, literally rotten old pub. It's like got the stairs that goes to nowhere because they used to be stairs to upstairs, but they've closed it off. It's probably a separate unit. And in the corner... There's a tiny fireplace, and I'll post some of these pictures up to shiftheads.ca in the Facebook group. And in the corner, there's this tiny fireplace, and I was like, that can't be real. Like, it looked like it was just lights, you know, like those pretend glowing ember lights you see in the in the store on when they sell those fireplaces. 
and uh, and and I kind of sniffed, and I'm like, that's real. And I put my hand close, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's real. And then the guy sitting next to me had a paper towel, and he threw it in the fireplace and got up and walked away. And sure enough, it burned up. And then I realized what it was. It was a tiny little fireplace, and it looked like the, the tile around the fireplace was so old. It looked like something out of a horror movie. It was so old. And uh, it couldn't have been more than 10 or 12 inches wide for the hole, the opening, for that little fire to burn. And you know what it was? It was coal. It was a coal fireplace that was still burning today to heat that pub. Uh, that half of the pub and that's what it that's what it was and i thought you know what you look at how far we've come in some ways and how traditional some of these places are there's tiny little bricks of coal well they were small they guess they look more like a traditional brick not quite that big and there was two of them and a bunch of you know ambers and stuff embers underneath it um and uh and there they were burning away heating that place so i thought is that ever cool really that throwback i get it coal and all those things and then it occurred to me that the sort of that conditioning, I was like, I'm going to tell a story on the radio. And then I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't talk about burning coal because someone's going to get mad. And I was like, screw that. Like, this is real life. This is the real life conversation. This is how people are. This is how that pub is staying warm today. And you imagine about all the conversations we have about coal and uh, the natural gas and heating oils and stuff coming from Russia to Europe through the war in Ukraine and all these things. And those are the places that are going to suffer, right? Like, how are they going to survive and stay warm? 11 degrees in, Ju- in June. So I, it was a really grounding moment for me, incredibly grounding. Now, I did find out why it was so expensive to be there uh, in Dublin on the weekend that I went this past weekend because every hotel room was about $500 a night. I, luckily, I booked the ones that I needed earlier. Um, and the cars were $500 a day. A few months ago when I had looked, that I had... Um, a few months ago when I had looked, it was like more normal car rental prices. And I found out why. Number one, it was Pride Weekend. I didn't realize that. First Pride Weekend, of course, in in um, a couple of years. And it was absolutely full of people who were celebrating and uh, taking their stand for the, for the Pride Parades. There was four major concerts on, on the 24th. And I tried to take note and write all of them down. Um, Eagles by Rail was one. Uh, these are the big arenas, too, that were full. And there was a couple other ones. And it was, uh, was it Alt-J? I don't think it was the Arkells. But there was um, there was four that night. Major. We're talking the biggest of the venues. And then there was three the next night. And so everybody was going to concerts. And it was so cool to see. There was, like, parades of people walking down the road to go to concerts. And... um and it was just like staggering to see all these people. I loved it. It was really great. And then it did occur to me that there's about 1.6 million people in um, in Dublin, Dublin area, Dublin city, Dublin county. And um, and then I was looking at <laughs> I was looking at Calgary, and I'm like, we can't do that many concerts in four weeks because there's no venues. And that's the difference, that people go out, they see each other, they talk to each other. There's no drive-thrus that I could find. Never didn't find a single drive-thru. And they get out of the car, and they sit in the coffee shops. And I said to my friend Julie, who lives in Belfast, I said, oh, yeah, nobody goes in coffee shops anymore. They all, you know, drive through for the most part. And she's like, yeah, but when do you chat? She said. And I was like, I'm not quite sure that we do anymore where we are. And that was really grounding 
to the thought that we in North America are so incredibly busy that we don't stop and talk. And then that's the same thing for the pubs, right? Like you go into the pubs and all of these pubs are so, um, are so incredibly full and people are just sitting there chatting in the middle of the afternoon. I learned a lot. I learned an awful lot. There's a lot more to be shared about this, um, um, about this trip. Yeah. The Eagles, it was the Eagles tour coming to Ireland, celebrating 50 years with guests, little big town on uh, on the 24th that was the one of the friday night shows that was there so it's uh kings of leon that was the other one that was there so kings of leon was also in concert that night that's the one i was thinking about arkells yeah they are and while they filled the uh, three arena that's for sure damn good hey good for them it's cool there's so much to like i i come back a new even though it was just a quick weekend i come back a whole new person after seeing life in europe even though it was just piece of Ireland and Europe and perspective on things. So um, I'm looking forward to living into that a little bit. This is the shift podcast. Over the course of the weekend, not as much fun and playful as we've had here in regards to our lives. Ukraine had a massive shift in targeting from Russia's uh, war on Ukraine and uh, it, 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 it was very scary. In fact, let's go to uh, Mikhailo Zernikov, who is uh, in Ukraine and joining us now on the phone. Mikhailo, thank you for squeezing us in at the last moment this morning. Appreciate that. Thanks for having me, Shane, as always. Um, I, for everyone who doesn't know, our conversation was literally Mikhailo woke up to me uh, badgering him to, to join me, and he squeezed us <laughs> in between meetings. So um, I appreciate that. Mikhailo, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, we always try to talk about the positive, And I think you right. know me well enough, and I know you well enough here, that uh, there was when I sent you a message this weekend, Mikhailo, I was truly worried. Um, not that you have more important people in your life, like your family, to communicate with that you're okay. But when those rockets uh, fell into Kiev, uh, I, I, my heart sank for a moment. Um, what was that like, and, and uh, how are things, and are you okay? Well, thanks, thanks Hank, first of all, for all your concern and for uh, doing this. And uh, it's, it's really, I mean, uh, it's heartwarming to, to get these messages from you and to everybody who's concerned. Thank you, world, for... Uh, you know, for supporting us and for uh, not turning the blind eye. Uh, look, yes, it was uh, quite honest, it was not uh, cool because I was about 500 meters from uh, um, the explosions. And I was actually, this, I think this is the first time or maybe the second time uh, as we're talking uh, when there is air raid siren right now. So I'm now in the, I'm hiding in the in the bathroom and uh, it's the same bathroom that I woke up at like 6.30 in the morning uh, when the missiles hit. And it was like my doors were shaking and I could hear it as if it were, you know, next door, literally. So just, you know, across the street or, you know, behind the wall. It was so loud and it was so, and it was scary to be, to be very honest. I, I mean, I, I saw missile strike before that um, in different places. I was near a missile strike before that. I also woke up to the explosions before, but they were like further away. This was like real near. So yeah, it was, and I mean, considering all the rest, you know, the, the shopping center, the, the, the mall that was hit, I mean, that there's not even a, a, a military, um, anything nearby. So that's, um, 
that's a not good development to say the least. That's that's another uh, sign that you know Russia is is basically a terrorist state and should be designated as such. And uh, what they're doing is is absolutely you know it's just trying to kill as many Ukrainians as possible. And uh, the world absolutely has to react and to you know just not formally but uh, increasing sanctions, doing everything possible in order to stop this. Yeah, and um, and uh, it's of course mixed emotion that we talk about. Uh, being lucky in a place where many people were very unlucky. And uh, so for yeah. those who don't know the story about the mall, uh, that's a pretty good-sized mall. They figure there's a 1,000 people or something in that mall at the time, and this is a shopping mall, just like we, I mean, Ukrainian's version of our shopping mall, and uh, and rockets hit that mall. So to say that there was uh, anything military about it uh, is just it cannot be the case. Does is it worrisome? I mean, the back to work in Ukraine or in Kiev in particular has been a thing. Um, is it too soon? Are people getting cautious and and maybe going? Well, maybe we should move along and and head back out to someplace more quiet. Or is it is it more related to we're going to take our stand and and live our life and 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 you're not going to stop us sort of mentality? It must be confusing. But where does it land? It's it's different, I must say. It's definitely you know there's no um, despair, there's no you know, you know the tactics of just scaring us to so we surrender. I think that the, this will never uh, turn out well for for Russia. It will never work because it, we're just getting more angry and more ready to fight back and to uh, yeah to kill enemies. I mean that's that's that, that's that's the mood uh, when it comes to like managing your logistics let's let's put it this way yes there are some people who are uh now uh who i know who, who decided to come back from kiev to to where they were before or to, to some other places uh also because there's uh um a lot of instability coming from uh belarus right now not only from a point of like missile strikes and uh airplanes but the possibility of, of real you know ground attack by, by belarus belarusian forces so uh, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a possibility now too. So even though it's not imminent so far, there's there's a, there's a lot of worrying signs. So it's it's definitely far from over. Kiev is, is definitely far from safe. There's no, no no place basically that is safe in Ukraine right now. There are safer places. So people <clears throat> some people try to move there, but uh, yeah, the situation is is very difficult still. One of the things about Twitter, Mikhailo, that I love and hate at the same time is the people I follow, when they like things, I get notified. I'm sure you get the same same thing. And, and of course, because of you, I tend to look at what you've liked. And so I see when you like something, it often comes into my feed. You know, Mikhailo Zernikov, uh, you know, like this this tweet. And there was this one that you uh, you did comment or like on that, um, and I translated it uh, because of, you know, uh, my Ukrainian is not great. <laughs> by not great i mean not existing maybe not maybe not yet <laughs> yeah soon uh soon um so it says uh this and it was uh, translated to this after the talks ukraine handed over eight tu-160s and three tu-95mcs and a batch of cruise missiles to russia in exchange for writing off part of the debt for gas that those rocket attacks in kiev were launched from uh tu-95mss those pl- those planes um and those uh, those rockets, you know, were the exact same kind of planes. Of course, I'm sure that we don't know if they were the airplanes. But the symbolism here, um, say, say what you will, but um, the Putin's 
well-thought-out symbolism and all the things he does is undeniable. And uh, I'm guessing Absolutely. it's to get into the heads of getting it into the heads of Ukrainians, if you will, and the thinking, you know, but is that an accurate uh, understanding that that's a scenario where these exact same kind of airplane that was originally given away in the independence of Ukraine back to Russia have now been used against Ukraine in this situation. And, and that must be a hard pill to swallow if you can excuse the metaphor, the English metaphor um, for Ukrainians. Right. It's, it's, I mean, it's, uh, you're very right about that. The symbolism, that's, that's the sick, uh, game that Putin and, and, and Russia basically is playing, uh, you know, using, you know, all the dates and so we, they're, they're, they're very, let's say, uh, um, um, fond of this. Uh, but uh, there's also another dimension to that. It is that it's how Russia uses these, um, a gas blackmail and basically using its uh, uh, natural resources and gas and oil trade and whatever it's trading for, uh, you know, to blackmail other nations and basically to extract these airplanes from them when we, you know, didn't see it. Of course, it was our fault. It's not the first century that we're fighting against Russia and we should have known better to give them the fighter uh, you know, the bomber jets. But we, we did anyway because we had a, we had you know the money that we had to pay back for Russian gas, and that's again. This is the the, the, the very vivid example of how you shouldn't um, buy gas from Russia at all, preferably, uh, but it, it, it definitely shouldn't, uh, especially now, of course, because it's you know it, the world is paying Russia one billion dollars uh, pretty much or euros per day still. So I mean, despite all the sanctions, and that that's still a lot of money to. You know, to fund this, to build these rockets and 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 whatnot, to kill more Ukrainians. So, the world should stop doing this at at, at some point. The sooner the better. But uh, what I'm trying to say is is how Russia is using, is weaponizing everything it can, and uh, especially the gas and, and and oil trade to the point where it uses the same airplanes against the nation that uh, that the nation gave gave to them. Your foundation, du jour. Um, I'm guessing that it's a blend of uh, people that are scattered all over the place right now, uh, people that are face to face and everything else. And, and uh, if you don't want to answer this question, of course, I trust you. So feel free to decline. But what is it like as a leader and founder of that organization? You've got a bunch of people in front of you that are seem to be very well educated, a lot of lawyers, right? And um, mm -hmm. that are working yeah. in and around uh, policy and all the things that you stand for and advocate for. But at the same time, um, you have these very well-educated people that are probably rather tenacious, if you're familiar with tenacious, hungry, right, to for right. change. Yeah. Um, but they're still human beings that have their children and their spouses um, with them that may have come back to the office in Kiev or may, are still may still be scattered about the world, um, you know, to stay safe. How do you manage your staff and your team of people and say to them, hey, we're going to be mm -hmm. okay here? Um, you know, as a leader inside, because we all have jobs, we all have bosses. How do you how do you manage to do that every day and, and look them in the eye and say, you know, hey, we're going to do this um, and listen to what their concerns are? That must be difficult. It, it is not easy. Well, first of all, we, we, we I'm happy to have a fantastic team where I'm not, again, the only manager. And we're, you know, we, we, we're a team of adults, which I mean, it's pretty much every Ukrainian in the you know every adult Ukrainian in the in the in the country that is now you know trying to uh, first of all have to have to 
had to grow, you know, significant number of years, so to say, figuratively, uh, to, to, to become an even more adult in its, you know, better times. And um, it, it, it is not, on, on one hand, it is not easy, of course, because you cannot guarantee safety to your team to, to the absolute, because, you know, again, there is no, no absolutely safe place in Ukraine at this moment. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, we're all, uh, again, we're all adults and we, we, ha- we do our own choices. We managed to uh, provide what, what, it, what we could uh, and what was necessary to, you know, to relocate in the first months of, of, of the full-scale war, uh, to, um, to do other things, to financially support uh, people additionally, to, to keep paying the, you know, to, to, the, 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 the checks and, and the other things. Uh, I think we managed it all right. So far, everybody is safe. You know, there's some people who are in the front line right now, who are our colleagues. There's others in the territorial defense. There's others who have families, you know, who are there's, there's very few people who are still abroad, but uh, most of the people are back in the country. Uh, if they were out, uh, the majority was here all the time. And we keep doing what, what we have to do, because on one hand, we have to uh, we have to do both. We have to win on the battlefield. And we have to transform simultaneously. We have to transform the institutions and the, you know, to become, to finish the transformation, to, to really, uh, you know, to, uh, to be strong, to, to be sustainable, to have, uh, uh, to be absolutely ready and, and capable to uh, fight back and to protect ourselves and, and of course, to become uh, a full uh, member of the European family, which uh, we are now getting closer to because of the, uh, because we're now officially a candidate country um, uh, to the uh, membership of the European Union. You know, one of the cool things about being in Ireland this weekend is is my I felt the proximity, which which was mm-hmm. a different feeling in my heart, Mikhailo. Like I had I had you know here in Canada we're so far away, right? I mean I understand when people don't pay attention to these things because it is so far away, and but at the same time away, yes, I felt. It is right, and I and I I felt proximity, and then that proximity was affirmed very clearly when I was on a tour, and we were on the west coast of Ireland, and there's a it's called I think it's called a Castle of Galway Hotel or something like that. It's a hotel, and it's it's the parking lot was empty, there was no cars, and one of the mm. um our driver of our bus was Ukrainian, is from Dnipro, well just just west of Dnipro, mm. and he um and so our tour guide said, why is that? Why is that hotel empty? He normally did a different tour. He hasn't done that tour in a while. And okay. um, Nicholas, the driver, said it's Ukrainian refugees. And oh. the whole hotel was filled with refugees. And then there was another one we drove by, too, and another hotel that the sign said, um, thank you for, it said something along the lines of, thank you for coming. Uh, no rooms available. We are currently hosting Ukrainians. And so I saw two places just in my travels in Ukraine and our, and our host said, you know, because we're part of the EU, you know, we are, you know, we are expected to host Ukrainians. So the EU has really adopted, it seems at least in spirit, Ireland for sure, mm-hmm. without a doubt, um, Ukrainians as a, a safe place to go to. And I found that quite remarkable. Well, yes. The, well, first of all, you are, you're as Canada, you are, there's kilometers that you know, thousands of kilometers that you know you're you're a bit far away in terms of geography, but we would definitely feel you not being far away in terms of support and uh, you know everything that Canada is providing and the role you guys are playing, which is amazing. So thank you for that again. And 
we were really grateful. And I mean, seeing, seeing this in the world is, is really heartwarming. And for the EU and for the other institutions, so there's, um, unfortunately, there's been, you know, in the, in the recent years, um, I don't know the the is probably a, a strong word, but I mean, uh, there, there's been a definitely an, 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 a downward trend uh, in terms of whatever whatever action you take uh, when it when it comes to you know international organizations. There's there's been some corrosion and some you know um, um, uh, yeah the, the downward trend in terms of both in terms of you know um, strength and 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 values and and whatever. Um, uh, that that uh, uh, that was, but at uh, the, the time of crisis, we really reminded ourselves, and the, the countries of the EU and, and the world reminded ourselves that you know values matter for the democracies, and that's that's the clear sign that you know it's it's not easy. It's not we understand it absolutely. It's not easy for the countries to you know to forfeit to 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 stop trade that they suffer from it as well economically. They but they prove once and once again that for them, values matter, and, and that values there are things that are more important than the money, and are things that are more important than you know your your everyday comfort or the additional I don't know fifty cents or whatever the the the, the raise on on a on a gas price because there's human values at stake, there's human lives at stake, and that um, even though that's that's all the other nation, people show solidarity and people really. Uh, can go far uh, to in order, you know, to host, to help, to to provide and, and to support Ukraine in, in in all the ways. Because guys, without you, quite honestly, we wouldn't wouldn't go very far. Mikhailo Zernikov in Ukraine joining us uh, here on the shift. I'm glad you're okay, brother, and um, thank you so much for for squeezing us in for this conversation this morning. Thank you so very much, Shane, for doing this again, and thank you, Canada, for for all the support. Uh, there you go, Mikhailo Zernikov, who is in uh, Ukraine chatting with us here on The Shift. It was remarkable for me to see those hotels and all the pieces of, of that puzzle that um, that are coming together and the amount of people that are standing by. A little bit of an audio breakup on that, by the way, and thank you for being very patient with the audio as it broke up a little bit at the end. The reason why it's breaking up is Mikhailo is joining us from a protective bathroom because of air raid sirens in Kiev. So uh, that connection is what it is, and we live with it, and we be patient listening to it, although it can break up a little bit. The reality is is that we're sitting here in the comfort of our, our beds, our trucks, our offices, and our cars going to work in the morning. And uh, that is the guy who's taken time out of his schedule to be with us on the shift and um, while he uh, follows the rules and, and sits in a bathroom having his work meetings uh, while there are air raid sirens in the background. Put that into context for our days today. That's the difference. This is the Shift Podcast. We've had this conversation many times over the last few weeks, and we waited to get the expert on until we were uh, able to dig into it thoroughly. And that means that uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is here. He's with Dalhousie University. He's the food guy that you hear on the TV and on the radio all the time. He's a friend of the show and a friend of mine. And I'm really glad uh, that we were able to scoop you up here for a little bit of time, Sylvain, because it's time. Now, we, we've we've given all the backgrounder about all the food and this is uh we're in the world of nasty now with inflation and the cost of food is that a fair fair statement yeah absolutely it was pretty predictable really when you were looking i mean we basically are seeing the perfect playbook to a global 
food security crisis, really. We, so we had uh, we have climate change really disrupting uh, our farmers' world, really. Secondly, the pandemic. The pandemic really weakened supply chains around the world. Thirdly, uh, obviously, you have the war. Uh, Russia uh, had plans, uh, unfortunately, not welcome plans, but the invasion really disrupted uh, our our commodity market, and um, and now you're seeing hoarding. Like countries are hoarding food because they're panicking, and so. All of these elements are basically making our food more expensive. Now, in North America, uh, I don't think we're going to be run out in, running out of food. It's, it's, we're in this food security bubble in North America with, with the United States. But food is getting expensive. We're not immune to what's going on. A bushel of wheat, if it's 11 bucks in Ukraine, it's 11 bucks here. So we're going to be impacted regardless. And that's really mm-hmm. what we're looking at right now. A couple of months ago, there was an awful lot of speculation with the um, armchair geopoliticians about Russia's intention in regards to food security in Africa. And that was a conversation that probably started about a month after the war when they in Russia started to really move around the south coast of Ukraine and they were, you know, Mariupol and all of those port cities, right? Yep. And there was some people who said, I think they're trying to squeeze food. And the EU part is that migration was the threat, right? This is all speculation, but migration was the threat. Squeeze the food in Africa, people start pouring out of Africa, and what's the where's the first place to go? Well, it's the land bridge, right? That's where it all goes. Yeah. And so now the potential impact of Ukraine not being able to export grains and all those things is massive around the world. Would that spillover effect occur? I mean, I imagine the ripple would be global, wouldn't it? Absolutely, it is. I mean, what what you're describing, Shane, is is Putin's uh, will to weaponize food, basically. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that throughout history. And, and frankly, uh, after the invasion, uh, I, I I mean, most experts in the agri-food sector knew that it was probably the worst time to pick to invade Ukraine from an agri-food perspective because Ukraine has the capacity to feed 400 million people a year. Wow. Okay. So that region is rich with with black soil. Uh, you don't need a whole lot of inputs to produce a whole lot. I mean, that region is so efficient. 400 million people. And based on reports that we're seeing right now, uh, we're, we're lucky to get 50% of that this year. So we're in a deficit, no matter what. And so when you think about famine, when you think about food insecurity, you have to think about Northeast Africa, you have to think about the Middle East and parts of Europe as well. And so obviously when people starve to death, they will move around. They will move to places where there is food. That's human nature. So, but absolutely, without a doubt, Vladimir Putin wanted to weaponize food uh, as he was invading Ukraine. It was part of his agenda, I think. And Melanie Jolie, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, just last week basically made the same comment to the Commonwealth saying that Putin uh, was weaponizing food. And and I thought it was, you know, being at the end of June, she was basically saying something that most people knew three, four months ago. 
I mean, that's mm-hmm. it. So it became obvious early on, and that's why a lot of experts, including myself, by the way, are are incredibly nervous. Yeah. Well, the price is around. Let's take this uh, large conversation and put it into the grocery store because that's where everybody understands. We've had um, uh, his name is escaping me off the top of my head. Uh, let me look it up, sir, I can, so I could be thorough here. Um, our guest that we had on the shift was the shrinkflation guy out of the states, oh, and. Yeah? He does all the shrinkflation conversations down there. He does the, you know, the big morning shows and all of that stuff. And and he really helped us understand, you know, the secrets of things like, you know, the the dent in the bottom of the peanut butter jar getting oh, yeah. higher and higher, Absolutely, right? Yeah. So the jar stays uh, bigger and and all of that. So we have been able to understand. Uh, Edgar Dworsky. So we have been able to understand some of the secrets behind making the jars smaller, the bottles smaller, the box of cereal thinner, and make it the marketing behind it, the super mega pack marketing, yep. um, be there. So are are we seeing mostly the prices change at this point? I mean, packaging takes time, but oh no, absolutely. I mean, uh, Shane, you, we we. We first of all, shrinkflation has been around for decades, uh, and we see cycles uh, of shrinkflation cases. Every time commodity prices are more expensive, it's just pushing uh, manufacturers to change their packaging strategy. And uh, I don't know what Edgar's stance is on this. I honestly just see shrinkflation as a strategy. I mean, that's basically it. As an mm-hmm. economist, what I'm most concerned about is how are we measuring. The impact of shrinkflation on the inflation rate that we actually see every single month coming yeah. out of Statistics Canada, and I honestly have doubts. I mean, I, I don't think it's there. It's that price or that cost per unit measurement they, that they we really don't. They claim that it's there. Yeah, they claim it's that it's there, but I don't know if that that it is. It's written on their website, but honestly, that's the biggest concern that I have. Yeah, absolutely. A, a slice of bacon is a buck. Due to shrinkflation, I get it. And of course, we've seen chocolate, all packaged goods being impacted by shrinkflation. And it really upsets a lot of people. And and my reaction to 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 that is, is always, it is what it is. The science is there. Companies will actually lose your business if they jack up prices versus shrinking volume. That's it. And they know it. And it works. Shrinkflation works. Well, that's the problem. It's good marketing, right? But yeah. I would say, and then of course, then then they go back to the original size packaging and call it the mega size, right? So uh, they they sell us more. I would go as far as to say, though, is that once people find out that they've been tricked, that's where, I mean, people. That's where they really get caught. It's almost like there's a little bit of risk on this side, and there's a lot of risk reward with the shrinkflation part. And but all I, well, the let's data talk about is there this. when you actually well, at the point of purchase. The, uh, in Canada, I mean, retailers are obligated to actually set the price per 100 milliliters and per 100 grams as well. It's all there. The information all, is all there. So it's not fraud. Is it trickery? It depends on, on perspectives. Yeah. But but I, I have to tell you, I mean, at the end of the day, it's really more about um, – uh, it's more about image, really, and and what I've argued to CPG companies like Mondelez and Pepsi, and they they have to start being more forthcoming about these things because right now everyone is noticing due to social media, people take pictures, you have memory all over the place on Twitter, on Instagram, it's gonna come back and haunt them. They they should Mondelez is the first company this year to acknowledge. To acknowledge that shrinkflation exists and they're doing it with Oreo cookies and other brands that they have. 
Okay, here's another one. Greedflation. <laughs> I hate these sticky words, but they work. Um, that, you know, I said it in oil uh, two years ago when the pandemic hit. I said, look, this is all going down. If you don't think these corporations are going to squeeze to make this money back, they're okay to, to survive right now. They're okay to make it. But when it comes back, they don't look at money. Uh, you know, affluence doesn't look at money from the perspective of how much did I make today? They look at the big picture of over this amount of time, we're going to make this much money and this amount of time, we're going to make this much money. When you get a dip in that time, the time frame doesn't change and the end dollar doesn't change. They're still going to squeeze to make that much money by the end of that time frame. That's how accountability typically is with executives anyway. So, because they know things will happen. They know a war will come up and they know, well, a storm will come up and these things will happen. So it's kind of designed into the system. We're seeing a lot of these, at least from the outside. And I say that anecdotally that I don't have evidence for, but a lot of these companies, the accusations are there in oil right now, are purposefully retaining or um, limiting demand and doing all kinds of things in order to make sure that their prices go up, right? Squeezing and create this artificial uh, increase in price or at least maintaining when they could drop price. So the greedflation of companies, are you hearing anything around that? It's it's a tough one, Shane. I've always said as a social scientist, the toughest thing to measure is greed in the system it's it's a tough thing to measure and i know a lot of people are pointing fingers at grocers for example but as a lab we actually looked at financial assessment statements of the last five years of the three big ones in canada metro empire sobeys and loblaws and uh, if people are accusing grocers of gouging we don't see the evidence because margins are the same. Revenues have gone up, but so have costs of goods as well. So margins have actually remained quite stable the last five years. But it doesn't mean that greedflation does not exist in the system. We have doubts. When you look at some verticals, beef is one, salmon is another. There's some funny stuff going on there we can't explain. So often when reporters call me and say, is there, is there greedflation? Is there, is there gouging going on? My answer is parts of inflation we can't explain, but other parts we just cannot right now. It's too volatile. Do you guys ever talk about the percentages? I mean, because when you talk about uh, profits, right, in, in those industries, they're based on typically those margins are based on percentages. So it's kind of like a gas station, right? Gas stations are, they, they, as soon as the price of fuel goes up, they'll raise the price of gas, right? The cost of oil goes up, price of gas goes up right oh, away. When people well, they, are traveling and demand goes right. up. Yeah. So, but then, but then when the price goes down, they don't necessarily drop it down right away. They might wait till the end of the day. They wait till tomorrow or until the weekend because the percentage changes. So if it's $5 for a steak and they're making 10% net at the end of it, you know, they're making 50 cents on that steak. But if the price of steak doubles, it's $10 for a steak. They're still making a 10% net at the end. They're making a dollar. So is it true that these grocery stores, because the prices are going up, their percent nets are not changing. We're seeing more profits inside inside these grocery stores based on the, the percent net that they're making on these products that they actually are making more money. The, the difference between fuel uh, and and your relationship with the gas pump is very different than with a grocery store where there's there are 18,000 SKUs. Many SKUs they lose money with, lots of money with. And with shellflation, which is another term, uh, oh a lot of grocery... <laughs> 
a lot of grocers are getting food, are getting products that are not as fresh as they used to because supply right. chains aren't running as efficiently. So they'll get and they'll waste a lot. I mean, I've, I actually I've spoken to grocers; they've had to actually throw away an entire truck of produce, hmm. and that's on them. Well, this so happened to me this morning. I looked at um, I looked at some lettuce in my fridge that normally lasts for much longer, and it's that, brown and gross. That's already. shellflation, my friend. That's how it's called. And so you're basically throwing away food that normally you wouldn't have to throw away. Uh, it's just because supply chains aren't operating as efficiently as they used to. So there's, but again, I'm going back to the margins here. Uh, yes, earnings are higher um, because they're seeing more traffic, but at the same time, uh, the costs of goods have gone way up as well for grocers. And they have 18 different, uh, 18,000 different products to sell to to you and I. So it's 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 complicated. So yes, in beef, do are they making money? Of course, they are making money with meat. Okay, but at the center of the store, I can tell you, for many SKUs, they're losing money. Yeah. Well. That's not good news, but it's encouraging, I guess. But the other thing, I mean, I'm a capitalist, I'll admit it, but here's the thing. If someone walks out of the grocery store with a T-bone costing him or her 27 bucks, who's to blame? Well, the person who's walking out of the store would be mine. Grocers are selling T-bone at 28 bucks a pop right now because they know that there are enough people who are willing to walk in there and buy that T-bone. If, yeah. a, if a recession occurs, God forbid, if a recession occurs, there'll be fewer people and prices may drop. Yeah. Well, and that's just it, right? I mean, we are the, it's, it's like voting in elections. We are the ultimately the ones to blame uh, that are there. And everything indicative, everything indicative to what's going on in life is present in all of this. The things we consume, everything. After my uh, weekend in Ireland, I got to tell you that looking at the fact that there was no drive-throughs and everybody is yeah. sitting down in conversation people standing leaning against the wall in the street talking to each other to me was indicative enough of how we are in full control of what this looks like if drive-throughs would have been uh, uh efficient money makers in dublin you don't think they would have been putting those in they've seen them <laughs> I all the you work in North tell America. Me after dublin i'm not gonna drink canadian beer ever again Ah, it's a tough one. <laughs> you, you might be right. <laughs> no, I like Canadian. It's refreshing. Canadian so, uh, beer is refreshing. Actually, some microbreweries, especially in your neck of the woods, are some of them are pretty good. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we picked yeah, up oh, no, our beer good. game in the last few years for sure. We did. the yeah. The Irish beer is more of a meal. Uh, the Canadian beer is a little more refreshing. That's right. A, of a drink. So, yeah, no, it's it, this is amazing. We're going to uh, we're going to bother you a little bit this summer, if that's all right. I'm around. And we'll bring you on the shift because we need to we need to understand this. We need to understand that shelflation part. We need to know look at some of the details. Um, forecasting in your world for what what do you guys do the next year? December. It's always yeah. in December. Yeah. And we've been asked many times if we uh, if we are revising our forecast. The answer is no, it's seven percent. So we're on record for seven percent. And Shane, in December, when we said seven percent, people thought we were alarmist. Yeah, we're at nine point seven now. That's crazy. Is it 9.7 is the number currently? Yep. Wow. In the grocery store. I think of you often because you're an army of children. And I always think of whenever I go buy steak for me and my kids, I'm like, yeah, but at least I'm not so bad. As long as you don't think about me when you buy Cheese Whiz, I'm good with that. (laughs) I do love Cheese Whiz, though. I will admit. That that one I must admit. It's our guilty pleasure. 
It is. People who say they don't like it, I still think they like it. It's they don't true. want to admit it. We won't get into Velveeta. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> uh, Sylvain Charlebois, Dalhousie University. Thanks so much, man. It's great to see your face. Thanks for being here. Take care, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with mayo? mayo. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of mayonnaise. Mayo. mayo. I'm not. Mayo. I know you're not, but I just think mayo is such a great. It just adds a nice little sweetness to your sandwiches. I'm not a huge fan of dipping fries in it unless it's like oh. a type of mayo you know like a may- like sriracha mayo or a garlic mayo like garlic, aioli yeah. uh but uh no i i i love mayo it's it's good stuff in mm-hmm. the far far west of ireland there's county mayo did you go there no you didn't go to county, county mayo oh no mm. grandfather on my mother's side i have a lot of irish i'm like 75 percent irish um, grandfather on my mother's side, uh, family came from County Mayo. It's very green, they say, but isn't Ireland in general? Green? Yeah. Oh, you know that, that Emerald Isle thing? The, oh, yeah. That color of green is very much a thing. Mm-hmm. It's that like you can, me. when you're driving along or riding on the train and you see that color of green, just the green everywhere, it's not quite, it's kind of a golden green, like it's green, very green, but it is different. It's very true. Which, by the way, your uh, county of Mayo is not very far away from Donegal, where Ryan's family is from. So maybe you're related, you two. Oh, uh-huh. possibly. Yeah. All right. Um, mayo on a sandwich. It, I mean, I can't do it. I'm no good at it. I don't know. Maybe there's magic to the mayo. Melanie makes sandwiches, puts mayo on it. tastes fantastic. When I make it, it just tastes wrong. So if you do like mayo, you're probably going to use it. If you don't, mm-hmm. well, you're not. Too much mayo can ruin your sandwich, but really does it ruin your life? One man in Georgia took offense to getting too much mayo on his Subway sandwich, and his reaction was not to return the sandwich and ask for a new one. It instead was to just shoot somebody. Subway co-owner Willie Glenn says he is stunned and heartbroken. It just breaks my heart to know that someone has the audacity to... To point a weapon and shoot someone for as little as too much mayonnaise on a sandwich. It happened here around 6.30 Sunday at this Subway restaurant on Northside Drive in downtown Atlanta. Investigators on scene collecting evidence trying to figure out why someone would do this. What you're seeing behind me is the result of a tragedy, senseless tragedy that we've seen numerous times throughout the year where an argument leads to gunfire, and now we have someone dead. Dead over mayonnaise. You can see where the bullets pierce through the front of this restaurant. Al Robinson is also a co-owner and says the victims were very young and star employees. Unbelievable. Jeez. WSB TV. Boy, you talk about first world problems, eh? Like, that's that's just the reality, is that... Um, that that person in that moment, I'm not trying to be empathetic to that person, but whatever's going on in their life, you you, you wonder what they're going to realize down the road when they grow up, mature, figure it out, whatever, and they look back in their lives after they're done doing their time in jail and go, I can't, you know, what are you in for? 
You know, people, what are you in for? Yeah. Someone stole all my money and I killed them, right? Someone, you know, hurt my child, so I hurt them, whatever these storylines are. Why are you, I, I killed a guy over a sandwich. Like, there's, there's nothing about that. Uh, WSB-TV, 36-year-old subject, sub suspect, hasn't been named, was later arrested in connection with the shooting. I think they should put too much mail on his sandwich when he goes to jail for 10 years or whatever it is. Mm, forever. Every day. Like, that, as, mm-hmm. as some sort of devious joke, they should put too much mail on all the sandwiches for the rest. That's what his sentence should be. For the rest of your life, you're going to have too much mail on all of your sandwiches, plus you're going to jail for a very long time. I think that would be justice. That's justice. Well, it's well said. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, for your your return to life work release, you have to work in a sandwich shop <laughs> <laughs> and deal with people's complaints. And the only topping is mayonnaise. It's the only yeah. thing that you can get on your sandwich. Yeah, unbelievable. That's heartbreaking, that story. Yeah, brutal. Okay. Are you okay with... The beach. Are you okay with the beach? No. No, I'm not. What? I, oh, I, I'm, you should know why. Many reasons. First off, sand is annoying. It gets in everything, gets everywhere, and it's coarse, it's rough, it's irritating. But the biggest thing is I. it is impossible for me to tan. There is either burnt Ryan or white Ryan. There is no in-between. So... I just get burnt. I just, I feel uncomfortable. I love water. I love swimming, um, but just not at the beach. It's too hot. It's not for me, man. I feel this is unfair. Have you seen Brennan Kelly's head? Like it is white. Yeah. I was at the beach today. It's actually, See? it's slightly red. I got a little, I can't really tell on my arm. I got that. Really, really can't tell on the radio. No, you really can't tell on the radio. <laughs> However, yeah, I got a little bit of color at the beach. I've been there the last two days. I'm not going for beach stuff and set up on a little bench there by the water read my book see the locals as they roller skate by yeah see i think i think the sand in places is something that's avoidable you come prepared um you know don't expose your places step one and don't wear your shoes in the sand take your shoes off right bring yourself a little towel wipe off your feet you know a little extra time right i think you'll be okay (sighs) yeah I know. Even like the night, I've been to some great beaches. Sobble Beach in Ontario, beautiful, warm water. I was okay at that one, mm-hmm. uh, but most of the other beaches I've been to just have not have not done it for me. However, I will say I've never been to a tropical beach in my life. I've never seen oh. the Pacific properly, like with palm trees and you know some wow. blue blue ass water, as it's referred to on the internet. <laughs> Uh, I've never seen that. Water. Hey, blue ass water. Yeah. Uh, well, there's that, different kinds of sand you need to know. I know that too. Uh, but I'd love to see like the black sand in Iceland, for example. That looks insane. Volcanic sand. Um, so maybe. Hana. In Hawaii. Hana? Yeah. Hana in maybe Hawaii, maybe that will change my beach. perspective. They have that too. Um, oh, I guess volcanoes. Yeah, of course they would. Yeah, there's well, there's a couple places there. That's the, it's a long drive, and it'll make you sick driving it. But it's beautiful. The so the sand in Hawaii is very granular. Like it's it's yep. it's like uh, it's tiny little balls, right? Like it's very granular. But then you get into the Caribbean and the white sand beaches, it's like a powder. It's so small. Mm. It's just fluffy. It's stunning. Like the white sand beaches of around Cancun and uh, Riviera Maya. You hear Can- uh, Jamaica and all those beaches yep. just. Mm-hmm. 
Brendan, you've traveled a lot. Yeah, I was going to say Veradero is a really nice, uh, probably one of the nicest beaches I've been on. But the nicest beach is actually Airly Beach in Australia, in which Sunday region of Queensland. Airly, um, A-I-R-L-I-E, Airly. Um, Nicest beach by far, whitest sand, turquoise water. Amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. See, that's the thing, right? Mm. It's it's beautiful. You get a good beach, man. You need to see tropical beaches, Rye. We got to get you on a tropical beach. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to do that. But all right. Shift shows going on the road. We're broadcasting Woo-hoo. from a beach so Ryan can burn his white ass with a blue water, blue ass water. Blue Ryan's burnt white backwards. ass on blue <laughs> ass water. Oh my God. Uh, some people like to bring metal detectors to the beach. Uh, some people also burn them with because uh, you never know what you're going to find. People lose stuff in the sand all the time. Someone found a rather explosive piece of history on a beach in Florida. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. That is kind of funny and accurate. Uh, emergency crews responded <laughs> to the Florida beach Wednesday morning after authorities said a possible landmine was found there. It took a keen eye to spot what law enforcement believes was a possible landmine uncovered in the sand behind beachfront homes in Vero Beach. Military crews carefully removed it while the beach was briefly shut down for safety, just in case it could still be live. Over the years, military ordinances, as they're called, or weapons and ammunition, have been discovered multiple times, even prompting evacuations like this Vero Beach scene from 2020. It's been going on for a long time. Andy Brady works for the National Navy UDT SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce and says he's heard of at least a dozen similar discoveries over the years. When I first started working here, People would actually bring things into the museum and go, here, look what I found. And we say, here, get out with that. This area during the 1940s was a prominent 20,000-acre training base for the Navy. And more than 100,000 men came here to learn amphibious warfare. It chose Fort Pierce because the beaches were more suitable for what they wanted to do. Uh, it was warmer, and the amount of annoying insects in uh, environmental terrain is what they were looking for. So they wanted it to be tough tougher the better. And part of the testing conducted here, testing the strength of fortified barriers and blowing up obstacles troops could face when trying to move ashore. It's 24 seven-hour explosions. I'm sure if the turtle people were here back then, they would have lost their minds. But after the base closed, Brady says the cleanup wasn't exactly thorough. They lost track of them. They left a lot of them here. The oh. turtle people. The turtle people. I honestly don't really know what he's... Like I don't know if he's trying to say environmentalists or people. Yeah, I think turtles. he's. Think, I'm, I hope it's not something inappropriate. First of all, as we talk about it, because I don't know if it is. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm I'm assuming he me- means that he um, that it's environmentalists, the people who are there to protect the turtles climbing on the beach. Yeah, probably a thing. Um, that's from WPTV. Uh, there's an unknown number of explosive weapons still buried on that beach. Every year, an estimated 2,000 tons of World War II munitions are found in Germany, at times requiring the evacuation of tens of thousands of residents from their homes. In Berlin alone, 1.8 million pieces of ordnance have been diffused since 1947. That's staggering. You hear about the stories about Vietnam, right? Like, Because oh, it's yeah. been not well organized to go through there, and people stumble upon these these bombs uh absolutely incredible it's the shift i'm shane hewitt i'm in calgary ryan o'donnell's downtown calgary brennan kelly is in vancouver are you okay with the the 
The? The. Just or is it the? The? the mm, good question. I. Uh, What's the rule on that, by the way? I was always what taught. What's the rule? That it's the if the next word starts with a consonant, the if it starts with a vowel, the end, the door. When is it duh? Depends where you are, I suppose. Duh. Okay. Wait. Or uh, or or damn. Damn. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, I have the actual. I have it here. Uh, when the when the becomes before a vowel sound, we pronounce it as long the. So oh. vowels. That's it. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Neat. Ta-da. We learned something new here on the shift. Knowledge. Okay. The or the is a pretty important word. In fact, it is the most commonly used word in the English language. It accounts for 5% of every 100 words used. And yet somehow someone just trademarked the word the Ohio State. This is the certificate of registration issued hours ago from the U.S. Patent Office. This means the university can make merchandise that just says the. The school tried to patent the word back in 2019, but the clothing company Mark Jacobs tried to do the same thing at the same time. Both OSU and Mark Jacobs have agreed to share the trademark How Firm Thy Friendship at The Ohio State University. Wow. So they're using the, like the... Ohio State. Like, that's the word they want to highlight yeah. on their merch. Wow. That's from The 10 TV. <laughs> uh, the university released this statement. The has been a rallying cry of Ohio State. The, I suppose, because it's Ohio State community for many years. As Buckeye fans who purchase official Ohio State gear support student scholarships, libraries, and other initiatives. The Patent Office rejected Ohio State's initial application um to be used for merely decorative manner as an ornamental feature doesn't appear as a function of trademark. So that would differentiate from other items. So they've been working on this for a long time and refining it, trying to get it to work. And now they have it. There you hmm. go. I, so are they going to just be really copyright infringement on the specific case of using like the word, the Ohio or East blank. Is that what they're protecting here? Or is it, so that's where I get confused. This is where it's like copyright makes me angry. <laughs> well, copyright's first person that just marked the idea, really, you know? Uh, yeah. And you'd have to prove that you've been using it. But copyright is typically, especially in the States, copyright's the, the core of the law. So, but you also have to prove that you're using it if you're not copywriting it. So that's, you know, that's a thing. So I imagine they're going to yeah. have T-H-E as the. I've already seen and now some no one else can use it. I've seen some of the examples yeah. of the shirts. Oh, there you go. We sh we've been trying to think of how to do the shift shirts. Let's do that. The shift. Right. Big words. There Copyright in Canada. See if mm -hmm. we can get it. Get All right. Em. Now that we've told the entire country, we're going to do it. <laughs> Hopefully okay. nobody beats us to the beats us to the copyright office uh, to get it done. Which, by the way, in Canada, I believe with trademarks, you have to you have to actually apply what industry it's related to as well. Now, if I remember oh. trademarking, because when we did um, the beard kilt, we mm -hmm. um, we had to do the names around the beard kilt had to be related to clothing and products of that nature. Like you couldn't you couldn't trademark uh, the beard kilt name when we built those uh, to cars. It had to be for men's clothing. Right. right. You couldn't or attire or whatever. Uh, so okay. you couldn't you couldn't just go 
you couldn't just go and be like, well, we own beard kilt. You can never use beard kilt. If you wanted to do men's fashion, it was men's fashion. If you wanted to do uh, airplanes, it was airplanes or cars, it was cars. Like you have to be specific. So you can't just go do this catch all. Anyway, I uh, learned a lot about that. So it can get expensive when you get into all of it by the time no you kidding. block off all the things and pay for it. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.